this week on the Backtable Podcast. We try to stratify patients. So the ones that are, tend to be more advanced uh, jump to the top of the list and we try to get them in for procedures sooner that, you know, somebody that's an earlier stage has a single tumor and can wait a little bit longer. Having labs and imaging, you know, within 30 days is very important. We typically don't biopsy these patients. If they have HCC imaging criteria, we will avoid it. We've had several patients that have had biopsies. We ended up seeing recurrences along tract or tract seeding, I should say, and then they drop out of the transplant list. So we don't favor biopsy unless it's absolutely necessary. If it is somebody that we suspect that has HCC and they have, let's say, an elevated AFP, but they don't meet criteria, we'll map and biopsy them at the same time, effectively saving them one appointment. So you avoid delay of care by doing that. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Backtable Podcast. If you're a new listener, welcome. For all of our regular listeners, welcome back and thank you for listening. You can find all previous episodes of the podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or our website, which is backtable.com. Very easy to remember. Subscribe to the show, leave us a review, or reach out to us on social media. Now a quick word from our sponsor. Therosphere Y90 Glass Microspheres is the only FDA-approved Y90 treatment for HCC allowing personalized and flexible dosing. An efficient and powerful HCC therapy, Therosphere safely delivers predictable, targeted, high-dose radiation with proven patient outcomes, preserving future treatment options while minimizing the side effects. Therosphere has over 20 years of success in HCC treatment and is backed by significant investments in clinical evidence with more than 100,000 patient treatments globally and has the support you need to efficiently treat. Calculate your dose with confidence using Simplicity Y90, personalized dosimetry software developed exclusively for Therosphere. Visualize prospective dose distribution and assess the absorbed dose delivered to give you optimal versatility and control. Durable outcomes, safe, reproducible results. Learn more at Therosphere.com. And now back to the show. Today, we're going to be talking about Y90. We have certainly covered this topic in the past, but interventional oncology continues to evolve. And today we're going to be discussing some of that evolution with two doctors who are on the front lines of interventional oncology. I'm proud and excited to bring to you two very excellent interventional radiologists, Dr. Juan Jimenez and Dr. Tyler Sandow. Juan and Tyler, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Yeah, I actually had a lot of superlatives I was going to throw in there because it was like a big deal. Like what some of the back table listeners don't know is like all three of us right here, these are interventional radiologists who work in New Orleans. And so there's a lot of talent out of two of the three people here. And so I was excited. Yeah, it's you two. I'm, I'm just lucky to be involved. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, right, right. right. I feel like, like we've made it. You know, we are um, back table podcast. It's all downhill after the yeah, this is the this is the pinnacle. When when do I get one of the sweatshirts? That's that has been like a dream of mine for five years. Actually, now that you say that, I'll drop it off at your house. <laughs> Thank today. you. I got a lot of hoodies. I got uh, a large for both of you guys. Awesome. Perfect. Yes, I'll drop them off at Tyler's Perfect. house. Awesome. All right. So how about this, Juan? Will you just go ahead and introduce yourself? Tell us a little bit about the practice, and then we'll jump over to Tyler. So I'm Juan Jimenez, originally from Argentina. Moved here about 23 years ago and uh, did all my training at auction. I've been in New Orleans for most of the time. Went out to fellowship, came back two years later. Have been had 
have had the pleasure to work with Tyler ever since. It's been great. So, you know, we're 100% interventional radiologists. We do a ton of high-end work, or what we consider high-end. And I guess that's about it. Let Tyler... That's a very right. that's a, that's a very modest run through of y'all's practice. All right, Tyler, tell us about yourself, your um, training, and and about the practice. Well, you know, I was thinking about this the other day. You and I have known each other for almost ten years. I remember that's right. being actually, it's been over ten years. No, two thousand eight. I remember when I was a first year med student, and you were a fourth year med student. We we had some fun times together. I was such a prick. Uh, you, you were fun, man. I was such a prick. We had a good time. Thank you, Tyler. That's And then yes. we wound up in New Orleans together only for you to leave me. <laughs> no, so I, I did my residency in New Orleans at Oshner. So I got abused by Juan for a solid couple of years after he came back. Learned a lot. I learned how to how to handle a lot of a lot of stuff. And then went on to a fellowship to try to mimic what I wanted my future practice to be at Georgetown, knowing that I was coming back to Oshner. And then I've been here ever since. So probably been on staff about five and a half years now. And it's been a good time. It's great. I'm, I'm happy to be back with you guys. Very nice. All right. So now, like, let's I really want to hear about the practice, because like to just say you guys like do some high end work is it's kind of an understatement. Like we talk about like just the day to day, like we'll get into the intervention oncology. But I just know from these guys like presenting at tumor board and from the cases y'all just show me on your cell phones that. It's the real deal. Like, I mean, this is the absolute in the trenches. I guess you can call it like kind of academics, but more like balls to the wall, private practice, like blowing and going, right? Yeah. I, I would say we're a big hybrid is probably the best way to call it because we don't, I, I think it, I, I'm jealous of some of these academic places where we hear that they do a couple high end cases and then they go home, you know, by like three or five o'clock where I, I feel like Juan built a monster and now we're stuck trying to keep that monster going. I would say on a, a nice day, an easy day, we probably do about 20 to 25 cases between two or three IR staff. On a rough day, it's somewhere between 30 and 40. We have an incredible team that we work with, nurses and techs that can turn over rooms and, and flip rooms fast. But when we're doing those cases, they're not just kind of abscess drains, right? With these this complex portal vein recans, uh, tips. We do incredible biliary work, biliary scopes. And then on the on the flip side, our oncology, volume is insane. Again, I think the majority of that credit goes to Juan and some of my predecessors for the the product that they have built. But man, we we probably do, I would say if we're not doing three or four mappings or deliveries on a day, it's kind of a, it's a slow day for us. It's the monster that Juan built. I was going to say, you know, Tyler likes to give me a lot of credit, but this is a team sports, right? And it, it takes a lot of people to get this going and get it running. I think we got to give a shout out to, to one of our old partners, Vijay Ramalingam. And I would say our predecessor, Vijay Tyler's and I did a good job getting the practice started. Uh, so it was easy for us to come in and take it to the next level. We are lucky in that we work at uh, one of the biggest transplant centers in the country, which brings a lot of people to our hospital. And we're also one of the tertiary referral centers for the region as well. So, you know, on top of everything that Tyler said, we also have a growing practice when it comes to, you know, even bread and butter stuff, you know, GU, dialysis. We're going to get a little bit more into PAD. Um, one of, two of our newer colleagues are starting to grow and expand all of the venous side of the practice as well, including the reconstructions, IVC filter retrievals and things like that. 
Oh, anyone else that uh, like helped build the Oshner way that like kind of paved the way for you guys? Yeah, I think we we had definitely have to highlight in our when we talk about our predecessors, you know, David Kirsch, Dan Devon, those guys kind of laid the foundation for building local regional treatment at at Oshner that and, and because of the work that they've done and they the presence that they established at our tumor boards, we've been able to to build on those pillars and grow the practice the the way that we have. Yeah, to Tyler's point, we wouldn't be here without them. They they said the ground stone for everything that's happened since. Very nice. So I've just been on texting with Ricky and Tim from Therospheres. <laughs> and I'm guessing you guys probably don't keep up with this kind of thing. But according to Ricky and verified by Tim, you guys do, you've had more Y90 deliveries in 2023 than every other institution in the U.S., it's what we hear, you know. I mean, not that anyone's keeping track, but I'm just trying yeah. to like paint a picture that like 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 we're talking to two guys <laughs> who are doing a lot of Y90. We do a little bit. We do we do a pretty fair amount. Okay, yeah. So we're going to talk about HCC. I mean, we can get a little bit into like metastatic disease, but I wanted to talk about like how Oshner got to where you at. I mean, because we're going to be talking about Y90, but obviously that's not the only game in town when it's you know modality of treating HCC. So previously, I know that you guys were using resin, but made the jump to glass. And so I was interested why and and any looking back, pluses, minuses, whatever. Yeah, you know, I feel like it was all like the perfect storm, right? Around 2018, 2019, we had several things happen. Uh, so VJ joined us in about 2017, and he really came in and upped our ablation game. So one of the things he does really well, and he really pushed the envelope. Uh, when you also look at what was happening around that time, you know, Premiere came out. So a new kind of, I guess, way of looking at uh, bridging HCC. And around that same time, the organ allocation rules for transplant changed. So before all of this, it would take sometimes three weeks to a month for some of our patients to get transplanted. And now everybody had to wait at least six months to get a to get a liver. So we kind of had to start thinking about, you know, if we needed to change not only with all of this new data coming out, but also, you know, with all of the changes that were going to affect our practice. And we did realize that um, we had a pretty good working system. You know, everybody was getting taste, everybody was getting transplanted. So I guess there was a little bit of a resistance to trying to change our process. Tyler had an excellent relationship with uh, transplant surgeons. And um, because of that, they trusted him and they confided in him. And when we tried to implement some of these changes, there was not that, that much of a pushback. Uh, I think he was key, you know, in us for be able to, to change our paradigm for treatment of these patients. And I would say, uh, little by little, as we changed, our results spoke for themselves. And then it just became, it was just simple. Tyler, what do you think? Well, I was going to say, to add to, to Juan's point, for a decade, we were, Oshner, I should say, I shouldn't say we, because this is a transplant thing, but Oshner was the largest transplant center year over year for a solid decade. They did more liver transplants than any other place in the country. And so we didn't need to, we didn't need to change at that point. Taste worked well because all we had to do was bridge to a certain point. 
And then they got transplanted in several weeks. But then when you change the allocation scheme and now to get exception points, you got to sit for six months that it was Juan's pushing. He was like, it's time for us to change because we watched a few patients. And by a few, I should say, we started to notice a trend. We watched some patients start to start to progress or or it was harder and harder to keep these patients stable or bridged on the transplant list. And that was a big impetus to change. And it was Juan's pushing that did it. But for the longest time, man, when you're doing 250 livers a year and you can churn and burn, we didn't need to. But things changed, so we we did. So I do want to talk about the different modalities that y'all work through and kind of your algorithm, like when you settle on Y90 and, and how you think about delivery. But one of the things I wanted to talk about is like referral patterns. Like, are all these patients coming through the transplant system or some of them coming like for oncology? I just want to know, like, how does everyone get sent to you guys? And then once you put them in into the IR process, like what does that look like? Well, it it used to be it only came through our liver conference, our multidisciplinary transplant liver conference, because a lot of these patients with HCC would either have underlying cirrhosis and they would be referred by hepatology or, or mm-hmm. entered into the conference via hepatology for transplant eval. But as we grew, as the conference grew, we started to notice that we had quite a few patients that with more aggressive tumor burden, infiltrated disease. We had more of a a buy-in from oncology. And so now our referral patterns come from oncology, hepatology, transplant, and then we catch everything you can imagine across the the Gulf Coast. So anybody with HCC, it tends to get referred through the conference. And that, Juan, you might have more to add to that too. Not not much. I think you you some summarized it well. At the end of the day, I think our practice is a multidisciplinary approach, and it's not only for HCC, but also for metastatic disease, neuroendocrine. We truly believe <clears throat> in the value of all our colleagues and specialties to come to a table and work together to give the patients the best outcome. So to Tyler's point, hepatology, oncology, surgeon, transplant, us, all of us, participate. Every patient gets run through conference and the decisions are made collectively for the best outcome for the patient. You know, sometimes they come to us, you know, lately we've been working very closely with oncology, doing some of the combination therapies to treat these patients. Okay. Once they get plugged in with you guys and they've been through MDC, they get seen in clinic, labs, imaging, kind of want to just like Take us through like the process of like getting your patients ready for what may end up being a procedure. We have incredible APPs. I think we should plug everybody that is involved in our entire team in this process. We have some incredible APPs and schedulers that help coordinate the care of these patients. So t- what tends to happen is af- after a liver conference, we try to get them scheduled in clinic that week or the following week. And then Juan kind of pushes us to maintain the protocol. And I can let him, him talk to that a lot more. But we have a we have an algorithm and a protocol for how we evaluate these patients and how we get them set up for treatment. So it's pretty straightforward. ABPs come to conference with us. You know, we we interventional radiology run these conferences. So we review all the imaging, uh, make all treatment recommendations as it pertains predominantly to IR. But sometimes the recommendation is, hey, this patient is systemic, and that's coming from us which I think it's very valuable to the entire team. So APPs sit 
with us during conference. They know exactly what happens. The moment conference finishes, we just set them up for clinic. The entire team notifies the patient and then we move. We try to stratify patients. So the ones that tend to be more advanced uh, jump to the top of the list and we try to get them in for procedures sooner that, you know, somebody that's an earlier stage has a single tumor and can wait a little bit longer. Having labs and imaging, you know, within 30 days is very important. We typically don't biopsy these patients. If they have HCC imaging criteria, we, we will we'll avoid it. We've had several patients that have had biopsies. We ended up seeing um, recurrences along tract or tract seeding, I should say, and then they drop out of the, out of the transplant list. So we don't, we don't favor biopsy unless it's absolutely necessary. If it is somebody that we suspect that has HCC and they have, let's say, an elevated AFP, but they don't meet criteria, we'll map and biopsy them at the same time, effectively saving them one appointment. So you avoid delay of care by doing that. But to Tyler's point, everybody, not only within the transplant, hepatology and oncology teams, but even our teams, like he said, our APPs and our schedulers, everybody's plugged in and, and, and become a very well-oiled machine to try to get patients uh, seen and treated as soon as we can. So you've kind of given us a rundown of the process, Juan. If you had to give advice to someone who's either at a big academic center or someone who's just on the cusp of like forming a well-oiled machine, what were some of your big unlocks that led for like increased throughput, like making sure the right patients were prioritized? Like I would always say like MDC is like, kind of like at the core of that, but I just kind of want to hear what you guys think. It's ownership. You Mm -hmm. literally have to own every step of the way, particularly when you're first starting. I think there's this belief that IR just does what comes to them. So trying to change that thought process in people saying, look, I want to be an active participant in the patient's care. You know, I'm going to take them from the beginning on their imaging, see them in clinic, We'll take this patient and make sure that everything that pertains to us will handle without you having to worry about. I think that's been key. Uh, we see a lot of sometimes particular patients come from other facilities or other regions. A lot of clinicians don't necessarily feel very comfortable dealing with HCC. So for us to be able to bring them into our system and help them navigate that has been very important and very good for patient care. All right. So... Moving on, like, so past the workup, you're getting them ready for some kind of treatment. There's just not Y90. I mean, can you guys kind of talk about, like, which patients end up with which treatments? And and we can exclude, like, systemic therapies, but which treatments, like, that you guys offer? Well, I'll say we follow the BCLC algorithm as closely to the T as possible. So if there's a patient that meets criteria for ablation, then we're going to ablate it. Unless we feel like it's a high-risk ablation and Y90 made more sense. We go for our process is regardless of whether or not they're going to transplant, we want to give them, even if it's a bridging strategy, we want to give them the most durable outcome possible. And I think if you look at the BCLC structure, the durability comes from ablative modalities, whether that be Y90 or ablation. The majority of the patients that we see either have pretty advanced cirrhosis. So if they weren't transplant eligible, our surgeons don't necessarily want to take an advanced cirrhotic to resection. And that's where an alternate ablative modality that probably provides just as durable of a result makes the most sense. And so 
we have, and we can kind of dive in at some point, we can talk about the research we do. We've been tracking outcomes on these patients for a very, very long time. And so we've noticed trends in our outcomes to kind of allow us to alternate a little bit of, or deviate, I should say, a little bit away from a purist BCLC scheme. So we don't necessarily ablate everybody anymore because we've noticed trends in our data that would probably push us more towards an intra-arterial therapy. And we know that Y90 is probably going to be the best for those. And we can talk about that later too, if we, if we have time to talk about our research stuff. Anything to add on that, Juan? And specifically, I guess one of the things I wanted to paint is like, you guys don't shy away from ablation. I mean, no. more than happy to ablate. And I think one time you even told me sometimes patients are candidates for both. Like you may ablate and something else may be a better candidate for intra-arterial therapy. Yeah, I think at the at the end of the day, we want to provide them a complete response with whichever modality works best. To Tyler's point, being able to look at our data has allowed us to fine tune mm -hmm. the way we cater to every patient. But at the center of it is the BCLC algorithm. Okay. What about anything else for intraarterial? Like, is taste on the on y'all's treatment list anymore, or taste ablate? Anything else? We don't. Taste, I should say, maybe I would say 2% of the time is might be what we might taste now. We, mm -hmm. and that's going from a place that was maybe 98% taste six years ago. We'll taste very rarely, only in patients that have probably maxed out their lung dose for Y90 or, you know, have lung shunts that are through the moon. And so we wouldn't be able to, to get a good treatment dose in. So those would be our candidates for taste. And back to ablation, we're not afraid of ablating. We OVJ. All, he he pushed us hard to ablation. He made us a blade on the heart. He made us a blade at the hilum. He made us a blade on the IVC. We're not afraid of anything. And he that's because he pushed us to do it. And so he helped us up our game when it comes to ablation. But regarding taste, man, it's rare. It's, I think, high lung shunts or um, patients that don't have any more Y90 options available. All right, Backtable listeners, that concludes part one with Dr. Jimenez and Dr. Sandow talking about Y90. You guys stay tuned. We're going to pick this conversation up with our part two about Y90 with uh, the Oshner story. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, direct message us at at underscore Backtable on Instagram, Twitter, or LinkedIn. Backtable is produced and hosted by myself, Aaron Fritz, and co-hosts Chris Beck, Sabine Dong, Michael Barraza, and Ali Behetti. Our audio team is led by Kieran Gannon, with support from Josh McWhorter, Aaron Bowles, Nick Shellcross, Josh Spencer, design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz, social media and PR by Ann Dang, Manisha Naganathanahali, and Manbir Singh Sabli. Administrative support provided by Jim Louis Kinnebrew. Intro and extra music is Ripperoo by Skeptic Moon. Find us on Spotify or at local live music venues in New Orleans, Louisiana. Thanks again for listening. 